pastoring years ago, it was kind of a common occurrence. Well, at least it is in my memory. Uh, every now and then I would run across a person in the church who would say to me something like, well, I'm just a very simple person. I'm not complicated at all. I am exactly what you see. Uh, and sometimes if I was new uh, and they were introducing themselves, they would say something like, uh, you know, you, you never have to have any worries about me. I'm just, uh, I'm just what I appear to be. And maybe it's just in my memory that, that I'm recalling it like this, but it just seemed like most times people who would make that introduction to me became some of the most confrontive and complicated and difficult people to deal with in my experience, whether I was their pastor or whether I was there as a speaker and got called into some kind of uh, arbitration with people. People who think that they are not complicated don't know much about reality. And maybe that's why they are difficult to deal with because, I don't know, uh, not knowing about yourself, not knowing how complex you are, not being aware of that is in itself a conundrum. How, how can anybody be that lacking in self-awareness, that, that lacking in, uh, I, I don't want to call it common sense because it's not that common. Uh, self-awareness, I guess, is, is something people have to work at uh, if they're not awakened to it by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but that kind of that kind of shallowness, especially among Christians, leads to all kind of irrational hatreds and prejudices. Uh, and among those hatreds and prejudices are when you start trying to suggest to these people that if they would just listen and learn and humble themselves to the fact that they may have deeply hidden, unconscious, broken places in their hearts that are causing them to not see clearly what they need to see in order to bring reconciliation and restoration in a relationship or a situation, you, 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 uh, you get a taste of how complicated their anger can become. This kind of shallowness leads to black and white thinking, legalism, uh, and really, ultimately, the kind of religion that gets labeled by more thinking, clear-thinking people, uh, uh, that, that kind of superstitious rejection of commonsensical reality that makes religion seem mentally ill or even dangerous. Now, um, the reason I bring that up is because you know in the in our last session together we talked about how do you really how do you really change how do you become a person who's living out the revelation that the new testament says we are called to be and you you obviously will never get there unless you are able to access the kind of understanding that I'm trying to to describe here. Now, in order to make a point about the the mystery that is inside of us, that only the Holy Spirit can plumb and only the Holy Spirit can reveal, I want to spend some time in the opening moments we have together examining the vastness of the universe above us the vastness of the universe beneath us and how the design of God in the creation of the entire cosmos, including man himself, has been done in such a way to illustrate 
the complexity of who we are and what we are so that we become dependent on him to explain us to ourselves. It's kind of a it's kind of a catch twenty two here. We need to understand how complex we are so we can understand how childlike we need to become if we're ever going to wrestle through the issues. Does that make sense? You've got to know how complex you are before you're then able to bow to that complexity and trust the Holy Spirit to unpack your mysterious behavior to you. I guess it would be like trying to pick up something that's so heavy you finally realize you can't pick it up and you just collapse helplessly in dependence on someone stronger than you to do it. The awareness of the complexity is the weight you can't pick up. But see, so many of us, or some of us, not many of us, but some of us may already know it's too heavy to pick up, so we'd never even tried. We just ignore the very existence of the weight and just try to make life shallow and easily manageable. And uh, neither the one who thinks he can pick it up nor the one who thinks he doesn't need to pick it up, neither one of those is in a proper posture to receive the help that only the Holy Spirit can bring. We've got to come to the place where we recognize our dependence. And then we learn to listen. And then as we learn to listen, we change from glory to glory. Does that make sense? So let's see where we can go with this. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician, said that he believed, and he based this statement on some information, but mostly on intuition. He believed that the entire universe is divided into approximately two equal portions, with man at its center as the dividing line, as well as the meeting point. Above man, the physical universe rises at 10 to the 27th power meters. And below man, in the subatomic universe, 10 meters to the 26th power, with man standing at the very center of those two huge numbers. Now, he turned out to be pretty accurate. What Pascal could not have known in those days is that not only is man the meeting point of the entire created cosmos, but within man himself, there's another vast universe. The human body contains 10 atoms to the 27th power, 28th power. The Greek word atom means that which cannot be divided. The universe itself contains perhaps only 10 to the 24th power in stars. So it makes comparing size and numbers to determine value kind of a useless endeavor. Of course, now we know about protons and neutrons and electrons, and there are about 200 smaller divisions below them and counting, still discovering more stuff below us that is a smaller division of the undivisible atom. So so much for the word atom. So Pascal's intuition about man at the center is correct on one level. I think God did it to make the point, cosmic point, that man is God's delight and the focus of his love and his purposes. But it seems, as research continues to show, that on another level, man is not just at the center of the physical universe, but in another dimensional level, man is infinite. There seems to be no end to these almost unmeasurable measurements. We don't know how many deeper divisions on the subatomic level may continue to unfold. Now, Einstein spoke of what he called 
the cosmic religious feeling that he experienced whenever he considered certain aspects of the universe. Now, any shepherd boy laying out under the stars at midnight could say the same thing. But Einstein's statement wasn't coming from a surface effect of watching the heavens. But his statement came from a depth awareness of just how high in one direction and how vast in the other direction the complexity of existence goes. A person with no musical knowledge may think a Bach fugue is pretty music, but a trained musician is deeply awed by its technical and aesthetic power and beauty. Knowledge by itself only puffs us up, as Paul warns us. But knowledge that brings humility in the face of awareness of complexity and genius, that kind of knowledge doesn't puff us up. It does the opposite. It it can be a form of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Einstein's awareness of the vastness of the mysteries above and below him awakened his natural human instinct toward worship. It, it awakened his instinct toward worship. Only God knows how much he actually might have worshipped with it. Now what, what might keep him or so many others like him with such knowledge of the universe that should invoke, uh, should evoke worship. What keeps them from following that hunger and offering themselves in a worshipful posture? Well, Scripture tells us, Second Corinthians chapter 4 says that the good news is hidden from us by the God, little g, of this world who continually seeks to blind the minds. And then according to Romans chapter 1, men discern uh, but suppress the truth because they are seduced by unrighteousness. They love unrighteousness. So we get here into some area that science just has no way to measure. We're talking now about a cosmic force operating within the cosmos but beyond the cosmos empirically who has the power to interfere with man's ability to see goodness and beauty and truth and therefore to acknowledge God and turn back toward God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says uh, that because we, we live in a self-willed self-determination that we operate in a constant state of transgressions because of that. We Transgression meaning going off in our own direction. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Uh, this, this, this avoidance of reality that Romans 1 talks about. Suppressing the truth, having the truth, but suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, Paul says it another way in Ephesians 2 that because we are uh, following our own path, informed only by our own tiny, limited knowledge, no matter how erudite we may be in some given area of expertise. It is infinitesimally tiny compared to what is out there. And yet in our arrogance, because we have some tiny little sliver of expertise, we pontificate as if we are the experts on everything. And we all do that in some form or other. Following our own path, informed only by our own limited knowledge based on what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Our way of acknowledging the world because we are under the ruler of the kingdom of this world or the ruler of the air. The spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. So in all three of these verses, 2 Corinthians 4, Romans 1, Ephesians 2, among many others we could turn to, there is this, this cosmic force that is in the cosmos but not an empirical part of it. So you can't go out and measure it and find it and put it in a test tube and evaluate it. 
this force that is seeking to to blind us from the ultimate reality who is God himself. Only the Holy Spirit can fully awaken us to both our condition and its only cure. He doesn't force us, nor does he leave us to find it on our own. He leads, he guides, and he brings about circumstances to the point where at some point we are able to see and the blindness is broken. And once we see, our hearts turn toward the Lord. For instance, did God just knock Paul from his horse on the road to Damascus and force him to repent? It's understandable if we interpret it that way, but God had been working in Paul's heart and life to bring him to the place where the revelation of the truth became irrefutable. And when Paul saw Jesus, he said yes. The point's this. Reality is huge. (laughs) That's an understatement. The more we know, the more we should know that we do not know. It's like the like the king and the king and I, when he's saying, "There are times I almost think I am not sure of what I absolutely know." If you look up the numbers on how fast knowledge is doubling, you'll get various answers. The overall estimate now, I think, is something about like. Every 13 months, all knowledge in all fields is doubling every 13 months. Uh, In specific fields, it's every month. Or in some fields, it may be every hour, depending on what field of knowledge you're studying. The amazing thing is how often some expert from some research arena props himself up to announce how he has discovered the answer to everything and there's no more questions left, and etc. His earth-shaking announcement doesn't have time to shake the earth all that much, though, because that announcement is quickly replaced by the next wave of absolute knowledge that somebody else has come up with. It's, it's not my aim in this message to discuss scientific discoveries. Wherever science functions to bring a higher good and a better understanding, that's a great gift. When scientists though, begin to comment on realities outside the bounds of empirical measurable experimentation or observation, or worse, when they attempt to annul truth, which science simply has no access to. It's no longer science, it's just nothing but philosophical sophistry. My only purpose for exploring these introductory issues about the vastness above us and beneath us and to point out that we, you and I, are individually at the center of, of this mystery it is only in order to bring us to this basic question. When you consider these truths, the glory above you and the mystery below you, what does that do when you consider the mystery inside you? How does that affect your view of yourself? How does it affect your prayer life? How does it affect your worship? What about the mysteries inside your own heart? The good ones and the not so good ones. Any of us who've lived beyond puberty know that there is a universe inside of us that is incomprehensible. And the longer we live, the more complex it appears unless we have the brains of a turnip. Sadly, there are folks who try to live like a turnip and who just treat life as a shallow surface event. And Any attempt to go deep with them is met with some acrobatic movement they have perfected in order to avoid meaningful conversation. But eventually, time will bring about the demands for honesty and hopefully a cry for truth in the inward parts. What is really difficult is when such people use scripture as a defense against understanding the universe inside of them. The very scripture that teaches us how to go into those dark, deep, hidden, mysterious places. 
they will grab a few verses here and there that they can use as a defense against the rest of Scripture. I mean, I, I don't mean to lampoon people or make fun of people, but whenever I hear people say, why can't we just have the simple Scriptures? Just give us the simple Bible. <laughs> I know they've never read it. Or they... they 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 went to Sunday school at seven years old and they're still thinking like Sunday school students at 70 years old. Thank God for Sunday school. Thank God for child stories that children can comprehend. But uh, when you use the Bible to avoid the Bible, you're in more deception than if you don't open your Bible and don't believe it at all in some ways. And so I want to look at some scripture that you're familiar with these scriptures. You you know, most of you know them. I mean, I try to remember who my audience is when I'm, it's hard to sit in a room with a recording uh, system and talk to people when I really, I draw so much energy from my audience when I'm speaking live. Uh, and I can pretty well kind of determine the perimeters that I need to stay inside of when I'm speaking to a, uh, an audience based on an intuitive awareness of what they are responding to and what they need and what the Holy Spirit wants me to address. But when I'm sitting here, uh, I've got so many of you on my mind, many of you who are just beginning to walk with the Lord, many of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time but struggling with issues in your life that have been there for years and you feel stuck. And then those of you who are just mature students of Scripture who really want to just study the Scriptures and go deep uh, in in those issues. And uh, it's it, I always have to ask the Holy Spirit to Edit and guide our time together. I don't ever want to waste your time. And I don't want to scratch where you're not itching. But only the Lord can determine what needs to be addressed and what doesn't. So I think what I'm trying to get across here is something all of us can relate to. That is, how do we access the mysteries inside of us that we don't we don't even understand ourselves. David said, you know, in the Psalms, I, Lord, please deliver me from secret sins. Don't let them take dominion over me. And the, the implication in that verse is that he's referring to things that he's not even aware of. You know, Lord, please save me from secret sin. He's not saying save me from those secret things I'm sneaking around doing that nobody knows but me. That wouldn't make any sense. He's saying, save me from those things inside me that I don't understand about myself. And Paul is echoing that same thing in Romans chapter 7 when he says, oh, I'm such a mess. The good I, I want to do, I don't do, and the bad I don't want to do, I, I find myself doing. We all know that verse. People quote it, sometimes they quote it as a band-aid to put on their horrible misbehaviors, but uh, and I've heard a lot of funny interpretations about Romans 7. I've, I've heard people say, well, Paul is not speaking of, of himself. He's just speaking in a general teacher's tone using a common experience of human struggle uh, and illustrating it in the first person. I'm not sure about that. I don't think I can buy that. Um, I think Paul had come in his interaction with the Lord Jesus out of his pharisaical self-righteousness into a, a really deep self-awareness. And it takes the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to give you self-awareness. Um, self-awareness is the total opposite of self-centered, narcissistic focus on yourself. A narcissist needs self-awareness desperately. If they had some self-awareness, they would become aware that they're an obnoxious bore 
uh, who needs to learn some humility. But Holy Spirit imparted self-awareness is the beginning of the healing of, of those issues that you don't know how to deal with on your own. Uh, and so counselors who have to work with people to help them come into that kind of self-awareness are actually doing the work of pastoring. This is pastoral care. It's also the ministry of the teacher. And uh, I know sometimes Christians get real black and white about, well, can God use a secular counselor? You know, that kind of thing. We're so pharisaical and so black and white in our view of things. But I've known many non-Christian counselors that became instruments in God's hands for grace to get truth across to someone who were not able to hear it through anybody else. So I'm not, I'm not interested in wasting energy talking about can God use secular counselors or whatever. Uh, I'm aware of dangerous false counseling practices out there that God not only would not use, but would, but obviously abhors. But that's obvious. Uh, what I'm, what I'm concerned about is that the number of Christians I run across who are suffering deeply and they're not making any progress, but they can quote scripture and they can, they can pontificate all day long from a Christian ease vernacular. But they don't ever change. They don't ever, they don't ever get help. They don't ever come into a, a, a knowledge of the truth that sets them free. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Well, what if, what if you know the truth only on a level that you want to know it, but you don't want it to interfere with your deep heart? And so you come up with a theology that denies that the deep heart even exists. Uh, so you can keep doing things the same old way and get the same old results. All the while convincing yourself you're following the Lord and uh, seeking Him and letting Him deal in your life. And so, does that make sense? What, what we're going after here? Now, my eventual goal in this time together is to step into some areas that I believe we have so ignored that it's no wonder we're not making any progress. But I'll get to that in a moment. For now, I want to just read through some of these scriptures and just recall them to your memory. I know you, most of you know them. But you may not know them, or you may have forgotten them, or the Holy Spirit just may want to quicken them to you now in this context about the universe inside of us that is more mysterious, more vast, more amazing than the universe below us or above us. So let's do that now. I've already mentioned some of these verses, but I'm going to restate them. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And please remember the word heart in the scriptures does not mean the emotions. It does not mean, you know, what we think of as the heart. We've talked about that in previous studies, so I hope I don't have to restate it. The heart is the core, your will. What you ultimately do with your body is what is coming from your heart. So David is saying, search all of me, my core. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Show it to me. He said, I'm not, I may not be conscious of it. Psalm 19, verse 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Please deliver me from hidden sins. I, I referred to that a while ago. Secret sins, secret faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And the phrase great transgression here means sinning with a willful, indifferent, high hand. Just an indifferent attitude of, of, of coldness. 
He says, Check, Lord, deal with the hidden root issues I'm not in touch with, I'm not conscious of, uh, so that I'm not guilty of falling into something more arrogant, uh, more dangerous. Psalm 18, excuse me, Psalm 16, verse 7, he says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Um, this, this makes no sense if you take it shallow and literal. He's talking, he's obviously talking here about becoming aware of, of hidden things inside of his own heart that come conscious to him, uh, in the night hours when he's half asleep or even when he's just awake but quiet and able to hear what's going on inside of him. In Proverbs 20, verse 27, the spirit of a man is the lampstand of the Lord, searching all our inmost parts. Now, why would you have to search the inmost parts if they're not hidden? Hidden who? Hidden from God? Obviously they're not hidden from God. They're hidden from us. The poetic language here is not talking about God searching for the truth. God knows the truth. Um, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Even to the penetrating and dividing of the soul from the spirit, the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the King James. I like that. I think that's more accurate language. The thoughts and intentions. It's not just what you think. It's those hidden intentions behind what you think that that matter. Now, I really don't understand some of the arguments that I read on this topic. I mean, I read a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm getting to where when I read it, I just think I got better things to do than read this stuff. Arguing over whether there is such a thing as an unconscious mind or not. Arguing over schools of counseling philosophy among Christians that want to deny the, 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 the fact of secret things inside people that motivate their uh, behaviors. Proverbs chapter 4 verse, I mean so many scriptures come to my mind as well as just what we know by living and what we know in our own experience for heaven's sakes. Uh, Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the forces that control your behavior. Well, if it's all obvious, then why do you have to watch over it? Uh, why do you have to keep an eye on it if it's something that's just so black and white, shallow, easily discerned? Why do you need the Holy Spirit to help you to do it if it's easily discerned? It just amazes me. Uh, now, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10 is a verse I want to mention, but I want to keep you uh, focused on the fact. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Only the Lord can search the heart and examine the mind in order to reward a man according to his conduct. That verse needs to be held in, in a parenthesis here because that doesn't apply to a believer. My heart is not crooked and desperately wicked. Uh, I gave my heart to Jesus. I have a new heart and a new mind. And when you're born of the Spirit, you can't quote that verse as it applies to you. But I'm mentioning it because it just underscores again the, what these, all these verses underscore, that there are elements in us we're not in touch with and we're not aware of, and we, we need the Holy Spirit to uncover them. This is so basic. I know some of you are going, Clay, for heaven's sakes, we know this. I, I, know, I know we know it. But I'm trying to take us somewhere uh, that I may not be able to get to until the next, the next nightlight. And that is, how, how do we engage with the Holy Spirit in moving into realms of revelation and insight that go beyond the basic principles uh, of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and baptisms and the basic principles of the gospel that is listed in Hebrews chapter 6. 
How do we move on? I mean, Hebrews 6 says we're to move on from there. Some Christians think if you mention moving on from the new birth or moving on beyond that to other uh, mature issues that you're you're blaspheming. The only thing there is is the new birth. Well, that's like saying the only thing there is to life is being born. Uh, thank God for being born, but the, the goal of birth is growth and coming into fullness of personhood. So let us go on unto maturity, Hebrews 6 says. Well, Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and divides the soul from the spirit, the joints from the marrow, is a discerner of your thoughts and intentions. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit slice through you and get to your intentions behind your thoughts? I've told this story before, but I'll impose on you that you might have heard it before. And if you did, just bear with me. But many years ago, I remember running into a person in the grocery store that I had had a terrible conflict with in a church setting. And uh, this person was responsible for a great deal of conflict and trouble. She was one of those kinds of people I, I talked to previously uh, in this study together. Uh, just claimed to be simple and sweet and no trouble to anybody, but was the source of a lot of conflict and miscommunication and rancor and trouble, heartache. And uh, I was avoiding her. I didn't want to talk to her. And on the on the conscious level, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm busy. I've got too much to do. I don't want to have to be friendly to somebody that I really don't want to relate to. And But on the unconscious level, I was really angry toward her, unforgiving toward her. And I, by the time it left my inner core and reached my conscious mind, I had prettied it up and perfumed it up to think it was just uh, something much nicer than it really was. And the Holy Spirit sliced right through that and showed me my true heart. Uh, and, and I had to then act. See, once he showed me my heart, then I had to take action with my body to line myself up with the uh, heart of God, which was to go over and speak to her. But when I did go over to speak to her, I found I was making her uncomfortable. And then I found myself enjoying making her uncomfortable. So I lingered in my conversation with her a little longer than I should have in order to kind of press the point that I was making her uncomfortable. And I got I got back out to the car with my groceries and the Holy Spirit, you think he let me get away with that? I mean, you, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and sliced right through that baloney and got to my real, unclean, impure heart. So let's try to draw all this together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 10 and 11, that the Spirit is the only one who can search out the deep hidden things in a man. And then he says, or obviously, or a woman, and he says, um, only the Spirit knows the things that are, that are in a man or a woman. He's obviously saying by that statement that there are elements in us that can only be discerned by the all-encompassing omniscience of the Holy Spirit who knows us inside out and can explain us to ourselves. Then he goes on in that letter, by the time you get to chapter 14, and he picks up that same theme and he does it in the context of trying to bring correction to the Corinthians in one of the many areas that they are off into unbalance or complete deception. He's already had to address the Lord's misuse of the Lord's Supper. He's had to address the misuse of marital relationships. He's had to address the misuse of spiritual authority and identity with one another uh, in cultic ways of personality, cult uh, hero worship, that kind of thing. 
Um, so, because he has to address corrections about the Lord's Supper, would that logically imply that the Corinthians were the only people that practiced the Lord's table? Because he has to bring correction to sexuality, does that mean that the Corinthians are the only people who might have had aberrant sexual brokenness or that practiced any kind of sexuality at all? Well, obviously not. And yet, when you get to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul begins to address the misuse of spiritual gifts, and in particular, tongues. And in, in times gone by, thankfully I haven't heard this recently, although I, I'm afraid it's still out there, uh, one of the uh, correctives that I used to hear purported by some pastors uh, in an attempt to get their people from not embracing praying in other tongues was that, quote, the Corinthians were the only people Paul mentions it to. Uh, that is that is such a, a lack of logic and poor exegesis and um, that I, you don't know what to say to it. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up here is because when you have people who are hurting and struggling and going through issues in their life uh, that they don't seem to be getting any help for, is it not reasonable to examine what parts of Scripture they may be either ignorantly or willfully resisting to see if maybe there might not be some answer, maybe not a complete answer, but some answer to why they are in the dilemma they're in in order to help bring them through to a better place. And so in times gone by, I've had conversations with people who have been in certain areas of, of, of trouble. And I've just presented to them the possibility that the Holy Spirit needs a, a stronger <clears throat> and wider access to them. And would they be willing to let me pray with them to be filled with the Spirit and that whatever manifestation of the Spirit he may want to demonstrate through them, would they be willing to yield to that? And most of the time they've said yes. And most of the time there's been a lot of positive progress from it. But every now and then I would encounter someone who had a, a, an ensconced denominational bias. And that's the only thing you can call it. You can't call it a scriptural bias. It's a denominational bias. We don't do that in our church. Uh, and so I've had to leave them to themselves uh, and trust the Lord to carry them whatever route he has to carry them to get the help they're eventually going to need. And I want to just say, I, I, don't, I don't really think they're going to eventually get the help that they're looking for till they humble themselves, repent of the resistance to the scriptures on the subject of the Spirit, and the workings of the Spirit, and become what Jesus refers to as being people who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Among other things, it means if you're poor in spirit, you don't arrogantly say, I don't want that gift. That gift is beneath me. I want a different gift. Um, Anybody who's poor in spirit is grateful to get anything from the Lord that the Lord gives them. But uh, when you read 1 Corinthians 14, if you'll, if you'll just take out the verses where Paul is affirming praying in other tongues, and don't, don't read the parts that counterbalance it with a corrective. For instance, Paul says, I wish that you all spoke with tongues. Just let that statement sit on its own. The Apostle Paul wished that everybody in the Corinthian church spoke in tongues. 
Now that does imply that they did not all speak with tongues, or it may imply that it was the norm in the early church that everybody spoke in tongues. But quite often when I hear people quote that verse, they they zoom past that part and try to get to the, the counterbalance part of the verse. But in church, I would rather speak five words with a known tongue than a thousand words in, a, uh, in an unknown tongue. Well, if you read the verse that way, you're not reading it the way it was written. You have to read both sides, and you have to give both sides equal authority. Does Paul want everybody to stand up speaking in tongues in public? No, he does not. That's obvious. But does Paul want everybody praying in other tongues? Yes, he does. So uh, why did we end up with such uh, strange prejudices over this subject? Well, there's two reasons that I want to mention. I'm obviously just going to introduce this now, and then we will go into it more in depth later. But the the two reasons for the prejudices are, are, are this. There may be others, but I'm focusing on these two right now. Number one, there is a prejudice caused by a terrible misuse of gifts of the Holy Spirit by well-meaning but arrogant, ignorant people. I was included in ignorant, arrogant, young people in the Jesus movement days who had a chip on my shoulder against anyone who would not uh, see things my way in relation to this subject. Uh, The Lord got me way past that attitude. But that left a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of uh, bad tastes in people's mouths uh, over the whole issue of tongues. I may have more to say about that in our next hour that we we will address this. But the other problem is related to something I was trying to get us to look at in the first 30 minutes of this study. There is a terrible lack of of awe and a, a complete resistance to mystery among evangelical Christians. We think we can comprehend the Word of God with nothing but our sheer intellect. Oh, that will be denied vehemently. But in practice, that's usually what you encounter. It's all about what you learn and what you memorize and how much Greek you know and how much Hebrew you know and how much uh, philosophy you can argue and Uh, how much apologetics you can wield. I am not against any of those things. You know that. Thank God for apologetics, good apologetics. Thank God for the original languages. Thank God we don't all have to know the details of the original languages. We can go to secondary helps that can make even the most uneducated person uh, a, a pretty sharp theologian on certain in most areas. But the bottom line is, for the most part, the church in America could, as Billy Graham said years ago, most of the church in America could function perfectly well without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could leave and nobody would know he'd gone. And so, as a result, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14 are completely, almost completely ignored And if they're not ignored, they are chopped up into pieces where anything that affirms praying in tongues is spoken of with a kind of a condescending sneer. And then the counterpart of that verse, as the one I just quoted a while ago, is uplifted. For instance, uh, Paul says when, when a man prays in tongues or a person prays in tongues, They edify themselves. But those who prophesy and speak a word that everybody can understand, they edify the whole church. And I've heard that quoted so many times as if to say that what Paul was saying was 
Now, when somebody prays in tongues, they're just edifying themselves, and that's not worth anything. That's, that's egotism. That's not what the text says. That's what they're trying to make the text say. The text says when a person prays in a tongue, he is edifying himself. The word edify is where we get the word edifice, and it has to do with building up yourselves. Jude quotes, he doesn't quote, he, Jude states in, in Jude verse 20, build up yourselves on your most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. So obviously this was a known concept in the early church among uh, all the leaders and all the people that when you pray in the Spirit you are praying in another tongue. And when you're praying in another tongue, that is building up your inner being. And that's a good thing. If it's not a good thing, then I guess tearing down your inner being would be a good thing. See? It's irrational to to interpret it that way. And then finally, uh, I'll just mention this and we'll look at it more in detail later, but Paul closes this chapter by saying, I wish, I, he said, I speak in tongues more than all of you put together. That's what the Greek actually says. I speak in tongues more than all of you put together. That had to be a lot of tongue speaking, by the way, since the Corinthians were misusing tongues. But he said, in the congregation, I would rather speak five words with a known language than a thousand with an unknown tongue, obviously, because it doesn't help anybody if I use my private prayer language in a misused, uh, uh, an incorrect way. But he closes this chapter by saying, do not forbid anybody to speak with tongues. Now, how many of, of people in the past that I've encountered who claim to believe the Bible Claim the Bible is their final rule of practice and belief. Claim they obey the Bible. Absolutely disobey that verse. They do forbid people to speak with tongues. And they go after people with a vehemency that's irrational to keep them from entering into that realm of the Spirit that... uh, Scripture makes so plain. Again, I recognize that that kind of prejudice may be caused by them having been hurt by people who misused it. But that's still not an excuse to twist the Scriptures and ignore the Scriptures and build up a prejudice against something that Jesus bought with his blood and made provision for by his spirit to the church. Now, um, that's a giant parenthesis of something we'll get into more later. What am I saying all of that for? What has all that got to do with our beginning uh, statements about the mystery above us and the vastness of the universe above us and the vastness of the universe beneath us and how man is at the center uh, of those two great vast physical displays of mystery. Well, here's what it has to do with. If the great mystery above me is is that vast, and the great mystery below me is that vast, and yet I'm created at the center of those two vortexes of mystery, and inside me, and inside you, is a universe of mystery far beyond anything that you can see with a telescope or a microscope, then doesn't it make sense that the Holy Spirit would provide us a means of accessing that universe inside of us and helping us give voice to what's in us. We we need to be able to express it. And so why would there be something like speaking with tongues. Uh, Why would it even exist? Because, to say it quickly and and maybe too too briefly, and we'll unpack it more later, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does that mean? Well, I, I can't explain it in great detail now, but most of you know already the, the word for 
word is lagos. In the beginning was the lagos. What what John was doing there was he's, he was saying, look, the universe was created by the lagos for the lagos. The lagos is the presence and power of God in creation who brings order out of chaos. Genesis 1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness and uh, hovered over the waters and, and brought light into darkness, separated the chaos by giving it order. That's the picture of Genesis 1. John purposely grabs that picture and when he's writing John chapter 1, he, mo- he, he wants to bring clearly into mind to his readers the one who created the heavens and the earth and brought order out of chaos and separated the light from the dark is the same one who took upon himself flesh and became Mary's child in the manger. And he is called the Lagos, the Word, the organizing principle of truth in the universe. Paul picks up that same concept in Colossians chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews does it in Hebrews chapter 1, and and I don't have time to unpack all that. Maybe you can read it on your own and get the idea. But the point is, I believe what the Holy Spirit is doing with praying in other tongues is he is manifesting that same principle of bringing order out of chaos. The enemy is afraid of what power is released in true praying in other tongues, true praying in the Spirit, and has set himself for uh, as long as history reveals the conflict to try to bring chaos through the misunderstanding and misuse of tongues. Now there are it's estimated somewhere upwards of 16 million believers in the world. If I got that number right, I don't know. 16 million, maybe more, who pray in other tongues. Maybe 160 million. I get it, I get it confused. There's millions. There's millions of people who pray in other tongues. Uh, I meet people in every denomination who pray in other tongues. What I, What I enjoy about it is I don't meet people who wear it as a badge of superiority or who rub it in other people's faces or who try to make it some badge of uh, 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 spiritual uh, validity. Uh, And so as a result of that proper humility over the subject, more and more people who who, who were negative toward tongues are beginning to open up to it and even become hungry to go on with the Lord in, in relationship to it. Now, the reason I'm, I'm just introducing this in the closing minutes that we have together is because in our next session, I want to really unpack this whole subject of the meaning of a prayer language. Why did God give what Paul calls and what Jude calls a prayer language or praying in the spirit. Uh, it cannot mean praying in the spirit cannot mean praying with some kind of anointing in your own natural language. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't obviously anoint a prayer in English, but that would just that wouldn't make sense to use the language that way. Praying in the spirit. Paul defines praying in the Spirit as clear as language can make it. That when he, he who prays in tongues, his spirit is praying, his mind is unfruitful. And here again, I can remember people quoting that saying, well, when you pray in tongues, your mind is unfruitful, as if anything that doesn't make your mind fruitful must be useless to modern uh, 20th century materialist evangelical Christians. What good is it? I heard people say, what good is it? I said, well, why don't you ask God that? 
don't, don't, don't ask me that. Why don't you argue with Almighty God? It's, he's the one who wrote the Scripture. He's the one who gave the gift. He's the one who manifests it in the mouths of millions of people. And he's the one who invites you into it. And so, uh, you know, I'll tell you, it's, it's, I used to not want to say this because I've seen so much misuse of this subject and so much unnecessary conflict over it. But I, I just have to tell you, it's, it's spiritual arrogance for any of us to say that some gift we don't particularly like should not even be given proper respect. Whose gifts are you disrespecting? Who gave it? So it is absolutely irrefutable that if you disdain tongues, you are disdaining the, the giver of tongues. You may think you're disdaining the, the wild-eyed Pentecostal who accosted you at a meeting one time and tried to get you to speak in tongues by you know, invading your space. No, it's not him you're upset at. You may have reason to be upset at him, but it's ultimately not him you're upset at. There's something in your intellect that is insulted by the call of the Spirit to humble yourself and become childlike and receive the gift of tongues. Am I saying everybody is going to receive it? No, I, I can't say that. Do I think everybody could? I, I do say that. Do I think everybody should, and if they don't, there's something wrong with them? I do not say that. Pick up here next time.